This message by Sam Shin, entitled Two Roads to Hell, was recorded at Wellspring Church on July 7, 2019. The texts for this message are Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, and Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. For the, body of those, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. I know we are doing a series on heaven, and the question is, why are we talking about hell? And I do think that um, it makes sense to speak of hell when speaking of heaven, because one helps us to understand the other in both directions. And it is sobering to speak of hell. It is not a light matter by any means. It's important, though, and it's important for all of us to understand this. A couple of, one caveat is that throughout this whole series, I'm not here, nor if you come to my house today, will I be the Bible answer man and being able to answer every single thing that you ask and know exactly the answer. There will be times where I will say, I don't know. In fact, I think Deuteronomy 2929 is important for us as we consider this series. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So I acknowledge that there are secret things that do belong to God and God alone that we will never have the answer to, even eternally. There are some things that God knows that we will never fully, truly understand. But 
That doesn't mean we try, we do not try. In fact, God's word in that very verse says the things that are revealed belong to us. So God's word does tell us much about both heaven and hell. And it's important for us to actually explore and study and examine and consider what does the Bible say about this very difficult and important subject? I don't know how many of you have had the privilege or <laughs> privilege is a wrong word. The opportunity to hear a sermon on hell. Um, I don't enjoy preaching on it, but I do think that to ignore this topic would be a disservice to you as a church and to a people. Hell is to be feared, but I hope after today you realize that hell also shows us actually just how much God loves us. And I know you can't even imagine how that fits together, but it does. And so what I'd like to show you is that there are two roads to hell. And the first is through the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, as we see in Luke chapter 16. And then the second is through the idea of being outside the camp in Hebrews 13, 11 through 12. So we'll first look at this first road. And in this parable, it helps us to understand the, the cause, the condition, and the cost of hell. And first, the cause. And the question is, why are people in hell to begin with? We've got to look at this parable. I spoke on this parable not that long ago, but we're going to take it in different perspectives because really when it comes to hell, by the way, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the whole Bible. So this is not something that is only found in the Old Testament. Jesus speaks of it quite often. And this parable that he tells gives us one of the clearest pictures of hell itself. And to understand this, we have to understand what is the context. We know, first of all, that Jesus tells the story of the rich man. And what's important to note about this rich man is that he remains nameless in the story. Jesus, as he always does in his parables, he does so intentionally. Because what defines this man is not his name, but what defines him is his wealth, his money, his his power based on that money, his worth is all wrapped up in what he's lived for. His greatest pursuit, his God, is money. And this is really important for us when we understand hell itself because hell is full of a place, full of, uh, is a place full of people whose identity and hope is found in anything other than God himself. When we think of hell, you have to think that's who resides there. Everyone who says, I don't need God, I can do it all myself. And in this parable, this rich man is probably a Jew, because that's who Jesus is speaking to, and he, as a Jew himself, is referring to this Jewish rich man who externally bore the marks of a worshiper of God. He probably went to the temple. He probably gave his sacrifices, celebrated the feasts. He knew God's law. But in his heart of hearts, even though externally it looked like he might have worshipped God, internally there was no worship of God. God, for him, was his money. And so here is this wealthy, nameless man whose identity is nothing other than this worthless money, especially in hell. There is no value for how much gold you have or your stock portfolio. In hell, it's meaningless. Contrast that to Lazarus. 
We don't know much about Lazarus, but we do know that he has a name. And his name means God is my help. That's what Lazarus literally means. And Jesus intentionally shows that Lazarus is the exact opposite of the rich man. I mean, think about it both in terms of their wealth, which is contrasted, but their very names are contrasted. One says, God is my help, and the other says, money is my help. And this man's nameless identity as a rich man really is, I am my own help. I don't need anyone, and I certainly don't need God. So looking at that, I think it answers this question of why are people in hell to begin with? Because it's not that God is unjust or unfair, but rather quite the opposite, because God is just and fair. He doesn't arbitrarily look at a bunch of people and say, I'm going to punish that person, that person, that person as a as sort of a despot. It's because God, in fact, is quite the opposite. He's a merciful God. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Ezekiel chapter 18, in it, God says this, and he says this to the people of Israel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's God's heart. God wants people to trust him, to worship him, to find their hope and their ultimate source of true wealth, identity, in him and him alone. And the default of people is, I actually don't need God, I can do this on my own. And so, since this first act of independence and rebellion, as we saw in the garden, against God, the default nature of every human being since has been that same heart. I'm going to do things on my own. And that very idea is essential to the foundation of all conflict between human beings, between parent and child. How many parents here say, if my child could only trust me that I am doing this for their good, if a spouse could only see and be able to understand the other and saying, I I love you, I'm with you, but I'm not there to harm you. I mean, every relationship has this idea of a conflict between two people who want to do things independently of the other, which is why marriage in and of itself is so hard. Why the becoming one flesh? It's taking two opposite extremes and fusing them together. And trust me, romance does not keep that together. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God's covenant. Paul says this in Romans 1, 24 to 26. Therefore, because of people's independence and rebellion and desires to do things apart from God, I'm going to add that there because that's essential what Paul's saying. God gives them up. He allows them to go their own way. He says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They started saying, I don't need him. 
I can do things on my own, by my own standards, and my own strategies, my own plans. They exchanged that truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature. It's not just serving money or whatever it is in our lives. It's serving ourselves. We are creatures rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The them in this text is not referencing just simply non-Christians. It's everybody, all of humanity, including us. Before Christ, all people always exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we always have served the creature rather than the creator. In case we don't think perhaps that this is referring to me, uh, I want to count... um, Quote author, uh, counselor David Powison. He helps us understand that in our heart of hearts, we all want independence from God. He asked this question, to who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? These questions or similar ones tease out whether we serve God or idols, whether we look for salvation from Christ or from false saviors. What do we, what are, what makes us happy? What truly makes us happy? In those instances, what makes us acceptable? If we're honest with ourselves, we can see the false savior just completely coming out of our souls. The rich man, it's very obvious what his false savior was, and it was money and wealth. And for many of us, we have the same false savior. Tragically, this identity of the rich man is not just on earth. It's in hell as well. That's what he's known by. Oh, you're the rich man in hell. It's like the smoker who's dying. I was thinking about this because of lung cancer and emphysema. And if you've ever seen someone who has uh, had a, a, a terrible case of emphysema and lung cancer ravaging their body, their mouth is essentially melting away from the sores of all the, the cancerous sores. And it's literally being eaten away. And they know that they have to stop smoking. He knows it. Loved ones knows it. Everyone knows that this must happen. But he can't. The cigarette still goes into the mouth. Despite knowing the fact that this is the cause of his death, he continues on. He just cannot stop. It is the tragedy. This is the tragedy of hell for this man. It's not as though he's there crying out to God for mercy. He knows it's horrific and eternally so, and he still remains the same, which is really goes to the next question. What is the condition of the hearts of everyone who is in hell. The condition of the hearts of everyone in hell is that they are no different than they were on earth. The heart doesn't change at all. Notice the rich man's response to hell. He's in agony. What does he do in in light of this agony? He demands Abraham to act and Lazarus to act. He he to send Lazarus, send him, Abraham. It's a command. The rich man hasn't learned one bit. He is demanding Abraham to send Lazarus because 
In the rich man's mind, even in hell, he saw on earth that he treated Lazarus like a nothing, a nobody, a slave. Just some nuisance that he walked out of his wealthy mansion, came out and saw this homeless man sitting there. And every time he passed by, it was like, this guy is ruining my property value. He is making my home so ugly. I just can't stand having him there. When he's in hell, it's the same thing. He still orders Lazarus around. No different. He also doesn't repent. He doesn't see his sin and rebellion in his life. And I think most of us think, well, if you're suffering miserably in hell, wouldn't you actually say, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me? Actually, that doesn't happen. And that doesn't happen for anyone in hell. There is no ownership over one's sins. There's no sense of the the consequences are so grave that it turns your heart. That's how hardened the hearts of people are inherently. He also is still trying to take control of his life and circumstances on his own terms. Just one dip of water. I mean, think about that for a moment. If hell is as bad as it, the Bible says it is, and if we can imagine, which we can't, just the, the most, the greatest inferno ever, and he's asking for one dip of a finger in water to somehow quench what he feels. That really is, again, a mark of how he viewed his life. Everything's by his way, his power, his solutions. There's no sense of trust in God, not a real heart trust to depend on him. What he fails to see is he needs rescue. Nothing he does there will ever bring relief. He needs salvation. And sadly, it's too late. The same spiritual blindness and self-importance he felt on earth is no different in hell. Nothing has changed. He's trying to save himself. This is what I would call the infernality of hell. It is, or you might say the criminality of hell. There is no desire to ever turn back to God, to ever repent, to ever change. There's a continual independence from God. So I think so often we have this idea that God is unjust because he sends people to hell who really want to change and he's not merciful to them. But if we were to actually be able to speak to someone in hell, they would say, I don't want to change. I don't care about this God. Even, and you might be saying, but you're dying. You're suffering eternally. What scripture shows us so clearly is that actually hell is full of people who get exactly what they want. And if you could go down there and warn them as, as this man is even crying out to Abraham saying, let me do this. Moses says, they're not going to change because you're not even changing. Why would you in hell be able to warn someone else and say, don't come here because it's so miserable, but yet you're no different than how you always were. John warns us in Revelation. This is exactly what happens. People nod their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Again, I want you to have so clear with this in mind is that 
Hell is not a place where a bunch of people who are sorry for their sins and want to change and want a new life. That's not what hell consists of. It consists of a number of people who have forever decided, regardless of how painful the punishment, is that they still will reject God forever. The cost then. What is this cost that people pay because of their independence from God? The rich man, again, wants to warn his brothers. And, and then Abraham tells him in verse 26 of Luke 18, And besides all this, between us and you and a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. What we know is that there is a, as Abraham says, there's a great chasm between God in heaven and those in hell. And think about what this means. First of all, it means there's no purgatory. There's just heaven and hell. There's nothing in the middle. There's no extra chance. There's no evangelism and missions once you die. That's gone. Everything is fixed eternally. Whatever you displace God with here and now, your riches, your relationships, your beauty, your family, whatever that is, if that does not change today and here on earth, it will not change eternally. That will always be with you. You will be known by that forever and ever. And if you were to say, I have no desire for God, all I want is myself, my family, my children, my wife, my, my inheritance, if that is what you live your life for and give your life to your career, then in hell you will be known as, oh, you're the investment banker who refuses to yield to God. You're the, the teacher who refuses to yield to God. It is a sad, tragic place. And there is suffering so intense that Jesus says that he describes Lazarus as, I'm sorry, the rich man just wanting that dip in the, uh, in, of water and not even a drop of water, but a dip of his finger to cool his tongue, which is impossible. I am in anguish in the flame. There's a reason why hell is called an unquenchable fire, as the rich man found out. Jesus describes it this way in Mark 9.43. Because fire is a symbol of judgment, but it's also a symbol of that which is so destructive, so powerful, so painful. You can ask some of the firefighters in the room. Imagine a fire, a conflagration so great that no amount of water could ever put out that fire. If the whole ocean were dumped on this fire, it would be but a drop on a gigantic fire. It is, it would be evaporated in the second, in a second. So why is hell a place of fire? Why is it described that way? The word for hell in Greek is the word Gehenna. And in Hebrew, it's the word Sheol. And those two words referred to a garbage dump outside of the walls of Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom. And there, what happened is that all the people of Israel, they would take their garbage, all their refuse, animal remains, and they would throw it in this pit. And they would burn that pit every so often. And the fire would be so intense, so great, that no one would go near it. It was that powerful. 
So what the Hebrew writers of the Bible and, and the people who wrote the Bible, what they did is they took the worst image they could imagine as destructive power, which is that garbage dump, and used that word to describe hell. Perhaps far greater than the image, that image, is how the Bible shows God. Because the thing about the way the Bible describes God is that the Bible also uses the word fire to describe God. In Hebrews 12, 29, God is called a consuming fire. In Matthew 10, 28, it says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The greatest horror of hell is not the flames, but the fact that the mercy of God is forever absent in hell. The love of God is completely absent in hell. Paul says in Acts 17.28 that it is in him we live and move and have our being. What Paul's saying is that God is constantly at work to sustain, to show mercy, to show kindness in our lives. And not just for Christians, every person, always, forever. And uh, as long as they live on this earth, God's mercy is with them in some capacity. But hell is that place where God's mercy and, ju- and um, kindness and love is withdrawn completely. And when that happens, it is only judgment that remains. And no one wants to ever experience unfiltered holiness from God. It would be devastating. There is nothing more fearful in the universe than to face God as judge without mercy. And that is hell. It's not that God is not at all, his presence is not at all in hell, because God is omnipresent. But what we do know is that the fullness of God's wrath and holiness and judgment is in existence in hell without any of his love and mercy and kindness. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, again, another, another reference to God as a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You do not want to face God this way. You might think this is best, and the greatest danger we walk in this world is to walk the road of hell, which is independence from God and thinking we don't need him. But you do not want to walk that road too long. Actually, not at all. We have a, a pet bunny. You know, you're probably thinking, why does a bunny have to do with hell? <laughs> and every once in a while, we let him outside um, because it's just easy. So we just let him roam outside our house. And right next to our house, there's a road. And there's also a lot of bushes and things like that. And he runs away. He runs down the street and... Jack, my son, he scours the neighborhood looking for him because we just let him out. And Jack's like, no, why did you let him out? Now I got to go look for him. You know, for this bunny, the freedom seems so nice, so good. Until he meets a hawk or a car tire. You know, that's not freedom. 
That's misery. That is destruction and death. And I wonder how many of us think, if I could just do whatever I want to do, I will be so happy with my life. For all of us who have done that and experienced that at some point in our life, which all of us have, it's never, never happy, never joyous. That's what hell is. Full of people who say, I want to do whatever I want without God, and that's my greatest road to happiness. I don't want his word. I don't want his law. I want nothing to do with him. And in that place is but misery because that's not freedom. There's no joy there. That is what hell is. And it is possible to be on this road, walking this life, even while sitting in this room, listening to this message right now, that you could be sitting there just like the rich man who went to the temple, who contributed to his sacrifices, who tithed his tithes, who was able to do all, celebrate the feasts and look like outwardly the perfect man. But he lived his life independent from God in his heart. And forever he would pay that penalty. Oh, we do not want that for anyone. There is a second road to hell. But instead of it being our destruction, it is our hope. I want you to look at Hebrews 13, 11 through 12, because this is a story about hell in this verse. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So also Jesus outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That sounds like a confusing verse until you understand, again, the context of hell. Because what the high priest would do is, after you as a worshiper would bring in your sheep or goat, and you would say, this is because I have sinned against the Lord. And you'd give it, and they would take that sheep, they would slaughter it, They would place it on the altar. They would burn it up. But there would be some remains. And after thousands and thousands of sheep and goats, what they would do is gather up all the remains. And you know what they would do? There was a right at the entrance, the back entrance of the valley, there was the gate called the sheep gate. And that's where the high priest would then take, I don't know if it's a wheelbarrow or whatever it might be, they would take it outside and dump it into the 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 junkyard. Gehenna. And then they would light it up and it would burn. That was hell. Hell is the place where you understood I've sinned against the Lord. And an animal is substituted for your sin. And it's tossed, the remains are tossed into a pit. And the fires burn it up. And in that place, it is so dark, so bleak. Now go back into Hebrews 13, 11 through 12 and understand what, what the writer is saying. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. They're burned outside in Gehenna. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Where were they carried? Outside the gates of Jerusalem. God's city, God's place, God's dwelling place. Where was Jesus carried? Outside the gates of Jerusalem to a hill, Calvary. 
And on that place, the writer is comparing the sins bound for hell represented by animal remains to Jesus bearing our sins. He bore the punishment of hell for those who trust in him. He bore the full wrath. You know that very wrath that I said is in hell today? Unfettered wrath. There's no wall of protection between God's holiness and judgment and the people because they've chosen. They said, I don't need God. For those who say, I trust in Jesus Christ, it's not that that sin just is gone in thin air. It's that the only way that our sins could be actually cleansed and atoned and paid for is that someone had to bear that punishment. And so the very punishment that people bore, bear eternally in hell is what Jesus bore on that cross for those who trust in him. Jesus, as the Apostles' Creed historically has said, descended into hell. Maybe not literally, but pretty much in every way he did. We must never forget what it means when we sing a song that says, your blood cleanses me, makes me white as snow. That should not just simply be a song that we sing that says, oh, nice words. That's what, that's the song I learned when I was a child and it's become so regular, so trite. But it should cause us to actually say, how could you do that for me? I am rightfully should be there. I should be there. But you bore that price for me. You went to hell for me. You paid the punishment for me. You suffered outside the gate. You, Lord Jesus, you experienced the wrath of God without mercy. If you understand this, you know why Jesus then cries out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That forsakenness is the same one for everyone in hell. But the only reason we're not there is because he did that for us. To sanctify the people through his own blood. My friends, everyone who trusts in Christ today, we are no special person. It's not as though you were so good, so loving, so generous, so kind to people that God said, well, you know what, because you're so good, I'm going to save you. It's just sheerly on the basis of God's grace alone. God just simply decided to love you. And the question is, will we go to hell to face God's full judgment without God's mercy? Or will we go to hell through Jesus Christ, his blood shed for us, by that powerful blood shed for us, by his sacrifice on the cross for us, we're going to go to hell one way or the other. Both roads lead to hell. But will it be through Christ alone? Oh, I hope it is. You do not want to face God without Jesus. So what is our road? You know, we always say living in light of the gospel, living in light of heaven. How do we live in light of hell? First is you have to fight. 
Do not give up this fight of faith. Too much is at stake, not just for yourself, but for your loved ones. C.S. Lewis says the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the apathetic one, the indifferent one, the unintentional one, cultural spillage. Whatever society determines is good, I'm just going to do what everyone says. Media controls what I believe to be right or wrong. And from that, our friends, we want, to, we want our friends to like us. Beloved church, that is dangerous. That is the safest road to hell. One way we know we are on a dangerous path is self-centeredness. Because that's the motto of hell. You don't need God. You can do it on your own. And if you are a person who is in that place today, you're in grave danger. The core feature of hell is that. And so we fight together. Together is a very important word. We need one another. Because I grow apathetic and indifferent and tired and worn and weary, and so do you. And we allow, it's so easy to allow every entertainment. And you notice, as life goes on, the entertainment list increases exponentially. It is so hard to battle when we feel so comfortable. If this isn't remembered every day that Jesus went to hell for us, every day reflected on, we will, we can lose our way. It is a gradual road. Thinking the gospel is a given is a road to the gospel being rejected. We fight with our worship individually and corporately. It's why we come every Sunday. We don't come to fulfill our duties. Or for God to like us more. Or because we need to put in FaceTime for people to make us seem and appear okay. We come because we are in need of each other to pursue Christ together. To not go down that road so gradually. So we fight. And gratitude must be the fuel upon which we worship. Jesus gave everything. So anything, any response is good as we worship him, as we delight in him. Second, this idea of living in the light of hell, it should give us wisdom. Psalm 90, Moses reminds us, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Jesus says essentially the same thing in Mark 8.36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I like how... Uh, Pastor commentator James Boyce puts it, of all the mathematical disciplines, he's speaking of teaching us to number our days, the numbering of your days, of all the mathematical disciplines, this is the hardest to number our days. Forget about linear algebra or discrete math or the upper levels of philosophical math. You think that's hard? Numbering your days is very hard. And whether you are a child a teenager, a college student, a young adult, someone older, and as you keep on going, numbering your days is not just meant for seniors. 
It should start at the very earliest of days. And the key to wisdom is always remembering you're not there. We're not here that long. And there's an eternal destiny that is at stake with how you live right now. And what you dream about, what you fix your mind about, what you imagine that will forever impact your life far more than your resume or your salary compensation or your GPA. I was driving back this past week on uh, the back road of Fallon. Um, it's between Dublin and Danville, and it's a country road. It's one that I take whenever I have to go to Danville. It was on the 4th of July, and the road was closed. So we had to take a detour, go all the way around, because we were heading up to Danville. And I, I was just curious. I wanted to find out what was going on, because the police had closed off both roads. And what had happened is that there was an accident. Two men from Walnut Creek had, was driving fast on that road, skidded, lost control, and banged into a light pole. The car had caught on fire. And the two men who were in there were unconscious. So first responders got onto the scene and had to try to pry them open. They had both succumbed to their injuries and they both died. That doesn't sound that significant, but one of the men, one of the men was a 29 year old Ethan Sellers. He had just graduated from med school. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking, I was just having this conversation with somebody recently about med school and how much work it takes. Now think about that for a moment. To be a doctor, I would say, in terms of career paths and from the perspective of the world, that's a pretty prestigious occupation. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of dedication. You have to essentially get almost a 4.0 in undergrad, apply to med schools, get in and out, you know, and just go through your medical school residency, internships, and then apply to jobs. And 29 years old, school all up to that point, working so hard, and you get there. And on a drive on the 4th of July, it's gone in a moment. Are we living for that? You think that you could just live your life, but as soon as you leave these doors, or perhaps even right now, I could fall dead right now. Some of you can on the drive home. And if you have placed your hope in the fact that you have worked so hard to get into med school and you've done it and you've you're about to become a doctor and one drive and it is over. And I don't know where his eternal destiny lies. Oh, but I hope that he has gone to hell through Christ. Meaning he is no longer in hell because Christ has borne it for him. I hope that's the case. But my friends, we are perhaps in that same danger. And if you say to yourself, I have plenty of time, it but takes a light pull, a wrong turn, a heart attack, an aneurysm. Moses calls out to you today, number your days. Live as though it truly could be your last and do not forfeit your soul for pittances. The consequences, as I shared, are unspeakable. There has to be then, with that wisdom, an urgency for ourselves, our family members, 
our friends, our neighbors, if we think this is true, it should, we can't just simply say, well, I'll share the gospel with my mom, my dad, sometime soon. The gradual path. It's an easy one, but it's a dangerous one. If this is true, if what God's word says is true, we don't have much time. And so therefore, do not delay. Do not delay. Is this true or not? You either believe in the Bible and you say, it is true, I need to act. Or you say, I don't believe it. But don't test the Lord. C.S. Lewis says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs, give them a fresh start? He has on Calvary. God has given the fresh start, the second chance. On Calvary, how dare we think that God does not love or care or give fresh starts? How dare we think that God does not forgive? On Calvary, he has forgiven. But they won't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid this is just what he must do. I hope today you choose Calvary. I hope today you choose Christ. And when you choose Christ, as we move forward in heaven, you will see that it is astounding what is before us. But oh, how grave it is if we do not have him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I, as I shared at the outset of this message, I do not like preaching on this topic. Because it is so horrific to think of someone going to hell. But I am afraid that every one of us has that heart. The heart of independence and rebellion from you. The heart of displacement. That sense of saying that we don't need you. And we see it in the rebellion of our hearts. Perhaps in how we speak to our parents. Perhaps how we speak to our children. Our husband, our wife, our roommate. Perhaps even to the difficult enemy that we know of. All of those manifest a danger. And Lord, we can't do it on our own. But we know by the grace of God, Jesus, you paid a heavy price so that we would not go to hell, but instead that you would go for us. And you have done that for so many of us. So Lord, help us to raise our hands to you. And sweet surrender. Help us to remember. Guard us from the gradual slope of apathy and indifference and laziness. Help us to have an urgency for our friends, our family members, our community, the world. Be with the Zimbabwe team as they go and share the gospel with people. Oh Lord, whether we are here, home, abroad, we don't want anyone to turn away from you, Lord. The consequences are too terrible. And the glories of knowing you are so wondrous. And as we come to this table, 
I pray, Father, if there is anyone in this room, O Lord, by your spirit, you would break their hearts. There is not a conversation that is strong enough. Not even this message on hell is strong enough to open eyes to yourself. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would carve through and pierce the hardest of hearts so that they would not be on this road. Let us weep, O Lord, for those who are perhaps still hard-hearted in this way. And let us intercede, O Lord, so that people would find their rest and hope in you. We worship you, Lord. We give thanks to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.